0: Hi, my name is Josh, and for the last, I don't know how many years, we would normally do this intention-setting talk and ceremony on New Year's Eve, but this wonderful space where we have been hosting our events was not available. They had another group that got in before us. So uh, this kind of actually works. It's early enough in the year, and it's nice to actually do it on our normal night so that If you ever want to join us, we're right now the first Tuesday of every month. Dharma Punks on the other Tuesdays of the month. Uh, You can always join on Zoom. And the information is, of course, on the DharmaPunksNYC.com website. The challenge of giving a New Year's Buddhist intention setting Talk is that, on the one hand, I like to distinguish it between our Judeo-Christian concepts of resolutions, which are very different, and talk also about why so many of the intentions we set for ourselves, uh, either one, are unrealistic, or two, even if we did attain them, they wouldn't really make much difference in our Mm well-being. So... I'm also going to be talking about the actual types of intentions that make a significant difference in how we feel. And um, so hopefully you'll get something from the talk. And then what we're going to do is we're going to have a meditation where we put into practice the tools. Once we do that, then Bryce, who's got the strings, is going to hand out the strings and you're each going to take one. And then if you'd like, you don't have to, but we're going to just recite the Buddhist uh, precepts and refuges, and I'll talk about what they are. And then you're each going to tie a string on your neighbor's wrist. You're going to tie three knots to represent the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, and then tie it to wrists. And it's just a reminder not to be a Buddhist, but just to have a spiritual practice in your life. And if you don't want to do it, by no means uh You don't have to. That's about as culty as we get. (laughs) So uh, with that, a predominant theme in both spiritual and psychological insights to the human mind is that much of our distress emerges from internal conflicts that are endemic, which means they're natural. Yet, even though you would think that the mind would be comprised of a single unified set of desires that in no way conflict with each other, guess what? That's not the case. Uh, No matter how wonderful our childhood attachment schema and early family systems and environments were, (laughs) or not, um, the mind has conflicting, contrasting, anything but cohesive drives um, that come into conflict. And so part of the work of any spiritual practice is to learn how to integrate these um, incompatible drives to create some sense of internal peace. Uh, An example, And I'll talk about others, but one classic example is infants are born, one, with the core drive to attach, the caregiving for sustenance, uh, emotion regulation, for safety, but When the child's need to attach is met, the child has another completely conflicting drive, which is to explore its environment without any interference or guidance by a caregiver. So the child's internal wiring is set with both exploratory circuits and attachment circuits. And so from the very beginning, we have conflicting drives in us. Now, uh, Abrahamic religions posit an innate dichotomy between uh, good and evil. Um, on the face of it, it's not a very uh, clinical or scientific delineation. But when you unpack the what. Is associated with good and what is associated with evil, you can see how these qualities are also innate to the human mind. Good generally represents kindness, charity, virtue, faith, i.e. they are what you would call pro-tribal service-oriented drives to solidify our bonds with other people. But at the same time, evil in Abrahamic religions is also associated with idleness, sexual or financial profligacy, grandiosity, and so forth. But those are innate states as well. People have innate sexual and drives to eat and uh, consume life. And so both good and evil rely or are innate drives. And in fact... Well, the Abrahamic religions sort of suggest that good must overcome evil. If that actually happened, it would be a disaster because, one, uh, good, if you don't have evil, there's nothing to define good. Anybody who knows the, the slightest bit about semantics knows that things are defined by their antithesis. So you get rid of evil then and everything's good then there's no longer a good no, never mind anyway uh, <laughs> that's a uh a complete digression but it's impossible to get rid of what in abraham religions is associated with evil even aggression is a knave Infants have aggressive impulses as much as they have impulses to attach. They also, if you've ever seen a baby, when it's securely attached, it starts hitting and pushing away. It actually starts punishing the attachment figure. So all of these drives are innate to the human mind. So conflict is innate. the human mind it's not a mistake and even though i know as as someone who uh, does do to psychotherapy it's very tempting to think when we go into any kind of therapy uh that if we're wrapped with internal conflict that there must be something wrong but actually it simply means that you have a human brain that's functioning and we need to simply integrate rather than there's anything wrong occurring in your brain so um in clinical psychology, the conflicts are between um, uh, our internalized values and standards that we interject by imitating other people. And these standards and values are essentially a paradigm of behaviors that allow us to look good to other people. That's it. We are a social species, and one of our core drives is to find safety or security in numbers and we want to be part of a world we are our core anxieties beyond death and is social anxiety, being uh, essentially ostracized by a group, and separation anxiety, being separated from the loved and from people we rely on. So we have social brains. And given that we have social brains, we have a very strong, innate, imitative, mimicking capacity to observe as children the way our parents interact with each other, the way other adults, the way peers interact with each other. And what we do is we see observing all these people and we internalize these values. And these values are associated with hard work, reining in our negative emotions, not letting other people see our sadness or anger financial growth, self-reliance, physical beauty, and of course the big thing that people uh, uh, learn to crave is achievement. Something that provides us with the status that sets us apart in a good way. Uh, Something that denotes achievement or uh, accomplishment. And so all of these, what we call internalized standards, Freud called them the superego. You don't have to know that. Um, You could just refer to them as the ego ideal, the ideal version of who we all have been taught we should be to be ever lovable and acceptable to others. And yet, at the same time, do we not have other (laughs) contrasting, conflicting drives as well? There's in all human beings, no matter how much we try to rein in our emotions, there's an uncontrolled of flow of emotions that don't look good all the time to other people. We all have our sadness, our loneliness, our frustration, our disappointment. We have the times we do awkward things in front of other people. We embarrass ourselves. There are times we become anxious and we don't want to be, or we feel too depressed, and we don't want to be around other people. We have natural internal states that we have been taught by observation other people won't like, and so when we're in those states, we want to isolate and hide and not go out and not want other people to see us, and this contrasting states in us is entirely natural. So, Our psychology, the human mind, is rife with natural conflicts. And it even gets harder than that because when the uncomfortable, awkward emotions that we've been trained or impulses that we've been trained to hide and conceal come out and we do something that uh, creates a sense of embarrassment There's a courtesy of our dorsal anterior cingulate cortex and our left prefrontal cortex. We have what uh, is frequently referred to as an inner critic. It's simply an internalized voice of the uh, shaming, judging parent or adult. Maybe it was a teacher, maybe it was peers, maybe it was a parent that we've internalized to Uh, judge us, to point out every time we've done a misstep. And this kind of self-criticism, of course, it backfires, because rather than leading to uh, a perfect ideal ego state where we never get anxious, sad, lonely, depressed, where we never say things out of turn, where we never have slips of the tongue... All that happens is the inner critic is associated with one thing only, which is addiction. The more people have a unregulated inner critic, the more they eat, shop, numb out to drugs, alcohol, TV, and so forth. It doesn't lead to any behavioral change, but it does, except if you count behavioral change as addiction, but other than that, it serves no healthy purpose. When we establish goals and intentions, we want the parts of ourselves to meet these interjected social standards that we've um, witnessed in others. And that, that strong social brain desire to look good, to go to the gym, to lose weight, to meditate, to save money, to become a Buddhist, to get a better job. to go back to school, to get credentials, to learn a skill. All of these things pop up. And uh, it's no surprise that our self-help industry is massive.
1: (laughs) Uh,
0: It generates actually $12 billion annually, and it has a 6% annual growth. And so and it employs... Millions of people, if you count in the service industry, weight loss, physical trainers, personal coaches, self-help books, motivational speakers, holistic institutes, and so on and so forth. It's massive that we all want to become pure, better, smarter, more confident, more creative. We want to be thinner. We want to look better. We want to be more muscular. We want to be taller. We want to have more Facebook followers or Instagram or whatever is the latest social media. I'm old. I don't keep track of it. Um, and then on top of it, we have the atomized level of American capitalism, which is no one's going to catch you if things go badly. There's very little social safety net in this country. So the urge to look good, to stay popular, to be employable is extremely Um, influential, emphatic in our internal states. And yet we're terrible at affect forecasting. That's actually a clinical term that means predicting what's going to make you happy. Human beings are very bad at it. Uh, We overestimate the degree that our baseline happiness can change and we almost invariably guess wrong or think wrong what's actually going to change. Even that incremental amount, our baseline happiness can go up. Almost all of us think the wrong things will make us happier. Um, The things we generally choose are the things that feel good, uh, things that lead to a fast secretion of dopamine. Um, Because dopamine, when it's secreted, feels good. So we assume That over the course of our lives, if we do those things more, then they will change our baseline happiness. So when somebody works very hard and gets a large paycheck, they assume, oh, if I make more money, I'll be happier. And guess what? All of the massive studies by Seligman and um, the positive psychologists like Jonathan Haidt and Sandra Morsky and Ed Diner, um, all of their studies show that, guess what, once you hit a certain amount, every penny you make over it, once you can pay your rent and have food, pretty much every dime you make after that makes no difference to your baseline happiness. So the idea that we can achieve or earn or uh, establish credentials to be happier Um, generally fails, we actually hit what's known as an hedonic treadmill. The more we work out, the more we get compliments, the more we get social media followers, the more people respond to whatever, I think it's, what is it? Hinge? Tinder? No, not Tinder anymore. Somebody help me out. Anyway, whatever. Yeah. Whatever You know, the idea that when we get people responding to us, that that will make us happier. And the idea that, of course, the unending hedonic treadmill of when I get in a relationship, when I get married, or when I wind up cohabitating, or when I move to a better apartment, or when I get a, a job that's better. And the studies show, of course, again, by the positive psychologist, that none of those things actually produce lasting happiness boosts at all. So guess what? Uh, My favorite story, by the way, I'll just have a moment where I uh digress on this, but there's a wonderful Buddhist monk, Ajahn Brahm, and he used to tell the story of, he was teaching in a small little town in Thailand, and all of the... People in his um, sangha would come and a lot of them would basically say, you know, um, when I get when I find my partner, things will be so much better when I find my partner, things will be so much better. And so he went and he became. Uh, head abbot at a monastery in Perth, Australia, and it was 10 years before he got to come back and revisit that little village, and when he visited the village, he met with the same people who were equally unhappier, and this time they said, I can't wait to get rid of my partner. <laughs> I can't wait to get divorced when I get somebody better. What a mistake, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now that doesn't mean, even if you do get a partner you really, really love, uh, that your ta- your baseline happiness will move up a little bit, but it's not going to be the answer to the uh classic internal conflicts or tendencies towards anxiety or depression. Uh, Two wonderful studies along this line by Brickman and Coates was that within a a year of winning the lottery, individuals returned to the baseline levels of happiness before they won the lottery. Makes no difference to their happiness. On the other hand, Recent accident victims report gaining more happiness from everyday activities than people who are completely healthy. And in their studies, they found that only 10% of the population ever changes their baseline happiness. And half of those 10%, it goes down <laughs> due to, <laughs> to loss, separation, and incarceration. So, uh And yet, there are ways to positively change your baseline happiness and also your sense of purpose and well-being. So the Buddha taught that there's three types of craving that cause suffering. Most of us are familiar with the first, which is kamatana, which is chasing after short-term sensual pleasures that feel good, release the dopamine really quickly, but then you have the mirrored synaptic um, decrease of dopamine, following it so when people binge eat then in the aftermath they not only does the dopamine levels go back down but it goes down to even less before they binge eat or when people play video games for hours the dopamine goes up but then when they stop the dopamine goes even lower than it was before they started playing the video game just like cocaine or speed when people take those drugs The dopamine surge to the frontal lobe, especially to the midline regions from the ventral tegmental, it surges, but then you stop, you run out of cocaine, it's four in the morning, you're searching your carpet, all I'm talking about myself in the old days, uh, <laughs> then you have no more. Then you go down to a mirrored synaptic decrease, and you don't, you're don't. you now far more miserable than when you started, and then you wind up back where you were at the beginning. It doesn't work, but also working hard, wor- getting approval at work, getting uh, better job titles, uh, getting recognition. It turns out the baseline goes up for a little while, and then it goes right back down. So, I just two more notes. One is that from an existentialist perspective, not that you care, but I always like dropping them in because my mother was uh, loved the existentialists. It was her religion. So I got to throw them in as a nod to good old mom. Um, they noted that assuming... Uh, prefabricated social roles that come with status is a form of self-deception, that it conceals the truth that we are all born without any purpose whatsoever, that none of us have any reason for uh, being here, that it's up to each and every one of us through our own endeavors, through our own questioning to transcend that cultural programming and find what for you creates those internal states that through their naturalness and through your ability to sustain them over long periods of time can slowly begin to reduce the amount of distress, the amount of conflict, and also to create a sense of self-esteem and self-worth. Finally, before we go into the solutions that do work, um, the idea that it's easy to... The idea that we should simply be able to make resolutions and then change, that we should be able at the beginning of the year to say, you know what, this year I'm going to spend less time on Instagram and more time meditating. And, or I'm going to spend more time at the gym and less time in front of the TV. That sounds great, doesn't it? That sounds wonderful. The problem is that's all based on the delusion that people think and that their thoughts change how they act. And guess what? Our thoughts are not influential, (laughs) at all in engaging new behaviors. In fact, the uh, thoughts play a very, very limited role in act. In fact, uh, the studies of, um, same study in the 1970s uh, that showed that all uh, behaviors are instigated by pre conscious non cognitive regions of the brain, and that the only role that thought have is it can delay a really bad idea <laughs> so when we think a lot, all we 're doing is stalling, but the impulses to act arose from much deeper regions of the brain, generally motor regions of the basal ganglia the tegmental region of the, stri- the striatum, and sometimes the right uh, orbital frontal, you don't need to know any of these terms. But essentially, the idea that we think and act is a delusion. What, we, what guides the way we act is how we feel. As Damasio showed, feelings are deeply, deeply influential on our behaviors, and also the types of people we're around. When children are around loving, secure caregivers, it engages exploratory behaviors. But when children are around adults that are not paying attention, then they don't explore. They anxiously hover around the caregiver, hoping for attention and love. So the two most influential um, uh, uh, influences on behavior has nothing to do with setting a resolution, it's actually, are you around people that see and understand you and make you feel safe? And two, how do you feel internally? Do you feel safe in general or do you feel anxious? So before you ask this question, should I give up all my goals? Is it Should I give up going back to graduate school? Well, of course not. By all means, those are wonderful things to do and as strategic ways to change a job or to get another career, they're fine. But if you think they're going to resolve the internal conflicts, the depression, the anxiety disorder, if you think that the alcoholism will vanish, uh, none of those will, but... Yeah, it can achieve its aim, but it's not going to fundamentally alter our baseline happiness levels. So what does work? You're probably like, okay, I get it. How can we change our behaviors for uh, the different one? Savoring the good. Turns out it takes about a half a second neurally to ingrain a negative experience, but it takes about... 30 seconds, some neurologists have supposed, before you start seeing the wiring engaged with not just the hippocampus, but the amygdala. And it's not, people think, well, it's only my hippocampus that is wiring my, and only if you're a nerd, would you think that? But uh, it's actually the strength of a memory and how influential it would be is actually your amygdala, not your hippocampus. And the only thing that engages your amygdala is how excited and how long and how much you dwell on an experience. So most of us have experiences in life and we just keep moving through them and we sort of assume, well, I remember all the negative shit that happened. Certainly, I'll remember the positive. But no, we have to literally linger and dwell and savor the good to give the amygdala, which is far more attuned to negative experiences. Negative events are just more impactful, hence what's called negativity bias. Human beings remember negative events with five times the clarity, five times the influence. So if you want to undo that, if you want to undo the negativity bias that helped us survive over the course of evolution but is now completely outdated, we have to take the practice to bring to mind positive experiences that have happened, hold the image in their mind of somebody acknowledging you, smiling, telling you how important you are to them, uh, providing the the neural gaze associated with, uh, you mean something to me. And then find that feeling in your body, spread it until it becomes exciting. And only then will you have a positive memory that will have any chance of being as influential in the future as the negative events that have happened. Two, distract ourselves from any self-related thinking. It turns out that if you do the all look at all the studies, and they're very scary, and you can find them anywhere. So, I'm not going to bother to give you all the different names. But if you look up default mode network, what you're going to find out is the single network of the brain most associated with stress and unhappiness. And guess what kind of thinking switch is that baby on? Thinking about yourself. When I think about myself, my default mode network goes on. When I think about, also, there's a couple of other thoughts, worrying about the future and um, speculating about what other people are thinking. Those three things, switch on the default mode network. So, you know, the pandemic was a magic bullet for switching on default mode network. And the, the the reason why it's so deadly or uh, stressful is because it's the one area, of the prefrontal cortex, that has direct exonic connections to your amygdala, which is the fight, flight, threat, detection system of your brain. When, on the other hand, we're engaged with any kind of task with our hands, it doesn't matter what. You could be cooking, knitting, gardening, playing an instrument. I always throw in woodworking. I, for years I never met anybody who acknowledge, acknowledged woodworking and then somebody said I woodwork, work and I was shocked. So I keep throwing in woodworking even though it's completely inane to New York. Uh, you know, tinkering with your your car's engine, anything you do with your hands playing a guitar, anything you do with your hands, draw, will activate what's called the task positive mode of your brain. Task positive, if you want to look up the research of Michele Csikszentmihalyi, that's how it's pronounced. If you just look up flow states, flow states are associated with the lateral region of your brain, your lateral region switches on when you're thinking about abstract problems that have nothing to do with you or the future, or when you're focusing on a task that you're doing. So again, if you want to be happier, find anything that you do with your hands or just learn about something that has nothing to do with you and you'll find that you'll be happier because it's mind wandering about ourselves that causes, if you look at the study of wandering mind is unhappy mind, we spend 50% of the time in mind wandering, but almost all of our unhappiness is due to the default mode network of the brain. Mm -hmm. Um, Three, self-compassion as opposed to self-criticism. There's little evidence whatsoever that self-criticism leads to any significant behavioral change. Some studies show that in short term, it can stop you from doing things that you don't want to do. So every alcoholic, drug addict, every binge eater has at one point tried to shame themselves into uh, not drinking, not uh you know buying coke not uh binge eating not watching 12 hours of netflix but over time we all when we try that fail because all that self-criticism does is it activates the very same circuits that activate stress in us There. are medial their default mode network we're just thinking about ourselves and judging ourselves so we're just adding more stress which makes us seek out the more addictive things again and again and again on the other hand there's self compassion has been shown to be a robust factor in resilience Students who fail midterms, the one that criticize themselves, invariably fail the courses. Students, on the other hand, who say, you know what, I tried my best. Next time, I'll just try a little differently. I'll study in a different way. Those are the ones who, guess what, go on and pass the course. Self-compassion, the saying in our mind, it didn't work this time, but I tried my best. It'll work out next time, is strongly linked to mental health and the reduction of depression and anxiety. And finally, when it comes to motivating new behaviors and rewards, it's been shown positive self-compassion is far more influential. So the fourth way to feel better, uh, besides the first three, which were again savoring the good, distracting our attention away from self-related thinking, focusing on a task, and three, self-compassion, Uh, is values clarification. What that means is Western societies are invariably goal-oriented. We're trying to pay a lot of attention to our status, to the things we can answer when somebody says, tell me what you do, But goal-oriented lifestyles push us to pursue goals not only that don't make us any happier, but very often conflict with our core values. You know, for example, if you work 60 hours a week, uh, but your core values to connect with your loved ones, guess what? Your behavior and your core values are in conflict, and you're never going to be unified, integrated, or happy. Likewise, some people have this agenda to travel and they want to travel. And so they tra- They make, plan these trips where every detail, everything they're going to do, every place they're going to see, they're going to stop at 12 different places. But when you ask them, why do you want to travel? They might say, to relax. <laughs> <laughs> well, guess what? Their behavior is directly in conflict with their core values. So in Buddhism, we place our core values first. We don't act and just hope that they create core values. We know what the core values are. And when we decide whether we're going to take on a new commitment or make a new obligation, whatever, we check in with our core values. So um, what should core values be? Sandra Lee and the positive psychologist, said About the ones I listed for you, along with practicing forgiveness and connecting with loved ones. Um, Small acts of kindness to others. The Journal of Positive Psychology with Van Tongeren showed enormous benefits when we do something small that benefits someone else. A famous study give uh, a group, half of the group, you give $10 and you say, spend it on yourself. The other half, you say, find someone who's a stranger and spend, and give it to them. And then you meet up with those people three months later and you ask, okay, what did you do with it and how do you feel about it? Well, the ones that spent it on themselves don't remember what they spent it on and don't feel any better. But the ones that did give it away, guess what? Not only remember in great detail how they helped someone, but also, B, they actually feel better about themselves when they tell the story. It actually still lifts their self worth. Um, Maslow also noted how important it was to fulfill any potential that we've always wanted. So if there's anything that you really wanted to do, it doesn't necessarily look good to other, other people, but he wanted to do it this year. I, you know, I was, you know, turning 63, I decided, I'm going to fucking learn to play the saxophone. My dad loves saxophonists, and I did. Now, I can play. Terribly, but I can play, and I love it. It's a lot of fun. I can solo over, badly over different tracks. So, um, in Buddhism, the intentions for that we practice in the ceremony are, one, not causing harm, which are... Uh, um, refraining from harming other beings, from stealing from others, from hateful speech that is intended to cause harm, from sexuality that causes harm to others, and from intoxication. Now, (laughs) (laughs) I am sober, so I interpret that as not drinking or using any drugs, and if you're a Buddhist teacher, you actually take A much stricter version of that precept Uh, for non-Buddhist teachers, which most of you are, um, refraining from intoxication doesn't mean that if you're not an alcoholic, you can have your glasses of wine, your beer, whatever. um, But you don't use it to the extent where you become heedless and can say or do something that could cause harm to yourself or to anyone else so each of you has to know what that delineation of what's harmful to yourself and harmful to others so um and then what we do is we take the refuges the refuges are to the buddha the the dharma and the sangha the buddha is simply holding in mind a image of, of what a secure uh completely um peaceful figure might look at you're just some people hold in mind the actual buddha but it could be anybody you know that you associate with peace why do we hold in mind these figures and maybe even hold in mind an image of ourself as com- as peaceful and as a compassionate and kind well human beings from World go need what's called object constancy from childhood onward, our ability to go out and feel safe in the world and engage in behaviors that we feel proud of is based on having an internal image, a secure base or an internal model of a compassionate figure that will be there to help us out. If we become emotionally overwhelmed. So, some of us didn't get it in childhood. Some of us did get somewhat of a secure base, somewhat got a completely wonderful secure base from our caregivers. But by the time we're adults, we can wander far away from figures that are unconditionally loving. And that can make us be more defensive and more walled off in our life. So holding in mind an internal image or internal refuge of a loving, compassionate, always available figure is enormously beneficial. Now in Abrahamic religions, people call that God. In Buddhism, the Buddha was not a god. He was just a person. You can, it doesn't have to be a God. I don't use a God. I've used just various people in my life that showed compassion, kindness who are available for me. The second is seeking refuge in the spiritual wisdom. And um, so you could learn about the four noble truths. For me, the big ones that are the, one of the cores of Buddhist wisdom is the three uh, facts of existence, which are one, everything in everything, every internal state is impermanent. Nothing is permanent. So anything we latch onto, especially externally, hoping it will make us lastingly happy, is going to let us down. That doesn't mean that happiness isn't available, but the idea that we can latch onto it or grab it or accumulate it is not going to work. Two, because of the impermanence of our internal states, a life based simply on trying to accumulate happiness will fail and will create suffering. But three, there's no internal, unchanging self or identity. We are limitless in our possibility. We are just a compilation of thoughts, feelings, sensations. And this, the only thing that limits who we can be is the stories we tell about ourselves, not anything innate to us whatsoever. Um and I was going to talk about the Kalamas, but I've been going on too long. Anyway, so lastly, I'm going to talk about, for a moment, refuge in the Sangha. As I noted, Sangha means community. Uh, the Buddha said, I don't see any spiritual quality that will rise without one having friendship to support it. In other words, the Buddha, when he was asked by Ananda, the Ananda, his attendant said to him, is it true that... Spiritual friends are half of the path. And the Buddha said, never say that. Spiritual friends are the whole of the path. Without them, there's no path. So not just internal figures that are emotionally soothing and convey compassion, but external sources of um, acceptance, acknowledgement, uh, attention, attunement. that's the talk. Now what we're going to do is a meditation where we're going to put into practice some of those tools. And then once we're done, we're going to do the intention setting ceremony. So relax and find a comfortable seated position. So closing the eyes and bringing your attention inward and um, seeing if you can cultivate, cultivate some kind of breath that feels really good And it doesn't matter where you sense the breath in your body. Just try to cultivate a rhythm. Generally, the most pleasant kind of breathing is even on the in-breath and on the exhalation. So take your time and really breathe In that feels really full, and then when you breathe out, don't push out the air, just allow the air to release. Just breathing in and breathing out. So if you can count to three when you breathe in, count to three or four when you breathe out. If you can count to four while you breathe in, count to four or five when you breathe out. So find the sensations in your feet and just really squeeze the toes and the arch of the foot and then release. And if there's any tension still, just use your awareness of the breath while you're breathing. Just hold those sensations in mind, and you don't have to do anything, but if you just breathe comfortably while you hold in mind an area of your body very often, you'll find that the action potential stored in the muscles releases. And then tightening the calves of your legs really tight, pull in the muscles and then release them, let them go and again, just survey that space. And while you're observing it, just also hold in mind whether you're breathing in or breathing out. And just let the ground of attention, your breath, allow you to be with the sensations in your calves. Tightening the muscles in the thighs. Releasing, breathing with the upper half of your legs. Continue with the buttocks and after you do the paired muscle relaxation there, just move up your body area by area and just make sure that you spend a little time tightening and releasing all of the muscle groups And then using the breath for 30 seconds to just be with any tightness or bracing or contraction. You don't have to set any agenda, just be with, create a compassionate awareness of all the tension that you encounter. And just be with it rather than run from it or need to change it. Find an area of your body where they can sense the inhalation and the exhalation. It should be an area that feels really spacious and good right now. Maybe the belly, maybe the chest, maybe the tip of the nose, maybe the shoulder, we might be able to find the in-breath as energy moving up from the abdomen to the sternum and then the exhalation as energy being released down the front of the body.
1: If you don't like working with the breath,
0: that's okay. Just listen to the sounds. Subtle right now. Breathing. Just allow sounds to arise and pass. So allow the breath to move to the background of attention and at the center stage of your awareness, whether through a visual image or just any other way, you can bring something to mind. Bring to mind a figure that you associate with unconditional or at least reliable kindness, soothing, appreciation, delight. This can be someone you've actually known. It could be an image of a spiritual figure. It could be someone you create entirely... From your imagination, it can be someone that you know of in the world who evokes these aspirational qualities. Just have this figure seated or in proximity with you and just feel, try to create the sense of what it would be like to be held in the gaze of this benevolent other. To be seen in the eye of the other is one of the most core drives we have since birth and it never extinguishes What does it feel like to be really seen and accepted? All parts, all feelings, nothing that needs to be hidden or concealed. And lastly, we're going to clarify our deepest values. Ask yourself, how would I like to be remembered? Imagine a 100 years from now, how would we want to be remembered? What would we want or hope someone would say about us? keep it simple what are the to be seen as caring helpful creative And secondly, as we look back on our lives, what are we most proud of? What
1: choice? What? Change what?
0: do we feel a time where we evoke courage or self-compassion? What choices, what acts are we most proud of? And, What values do those acts display? And finally, suppose in this thought experiment, you had a friend who told you a secret that nobody else was supposed to know. And the secret was that a comet's going to hit the Earth in a year. It's all going to be done. What would you want to do in this final year? Who have we lost track of we reconnect with? What have we not prioritized? That given the lack of guarantees we would prioritize? So if any of those reflections have brought any clarity, just know what those intentions are. Maybe simply the intention is to give those qualities more priority more attention.
1: So as we pass on
0: the strings, or the next part we're actually going to do the refuges and precepts you simply if you want repeat after me and you just allow these to be your intention in this moment and you can continue if you want to hold these intentions through the year so Knowing how deeply our lives are connected, and here's the part you're going to repeat back after I say it. I undertake the commitment to
1: protect life.
0: I undertake the commitment to refrain from taking that which isn't offered.
1: Great memory. I undertake the commitment to refrain from
0: causing harm through any form of sexuality. I undertake the commitment
1: to speak truthfully
0: without the intention to cause harm. I undertake the commitment to refrain from consuming intoxicants
1: (laughs) intoxicants.
0: to the point of heedlessness and unskillfulness. All right. So you've taken the precepts and now for the refuges. The refuges, I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha.
1: And then it's, for a second time, I take refuge in the Buddha.
0: For a second time, I take refuge in the Dharma. For a second time, I take refuge in the the Sangha. And here's the last.
1: For a third time, I take refuge in the Buddha. For a third time, I take refuge in the Dharma. For a, ter- a third time, I take refuge in the Sangha. I now announce you, man and wife. <laughs>